Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Greetings, everyone. I am so grateful to be here with you today as we gather around the Word of God. We're continuing our series on the book of Ephesians in Him, uh, experiencing the love of God and the work of Christ. And today we are in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And the title of today's message is How to Pray for Others. You want to know how to pray for others, don't you? I want to know how to pray for others. And today we find ourselves in one of the prayers of Paul the Apostle. And there's another prayer that he publishes in Ephesians chapter 3 that we'll look on look at later on in the series, even though I will reference it today. And for me personally, other than the prayers of Christ, I find myself here looking at Paul's prayers in Ephesians more than any other place in scripture when it comes to learning how to pray. So I hope this message really encourages you today as we look at this prayer. Let's dive right in. Ephesians chapter one, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe." according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's just take a moment and pray as we've heard God's word. Lord, I just want to start by praying uh, what we just read, this, this prayer of Paul, that you'd open the eyes of our hearts as we hear your word today, that we'd know the hope to which we're called and the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward those who believe, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things. Who's Paul praying for? Number two, what is he praying? And number three, what fuels the prayer? We're gonna look at those three things today. Who he's praying for, what he's praying, and what fuels the prayer as we are encouraged by this text of scripture. So who's he praying for? Well, verse 15, he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. He's he's praying for the believers in Ephesus, these children of Christ in a sense, and his family of God that he has, that, that he himself led to Christ. And Paul gives thanks for their faith. So this text tells us something about the quality of their faith, okay? They, they learned the gospel from Paul, and he commended their faith in this text. He gave thanks to God for their faith. So not only are these not unbelievers, they are believers led to Christ by Paul the apostle himself and have commendable faith and love. Early church Christians who have commendable faith and love by Paul the apostle. And yet, in verse 18, Paul says that in some way, they're still blind. When he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened. Folks, if 
early church Christians who learned the gospel from Paul the Apostle himself and had commendable faith and love needed to have the eyes of their hearts opened? We do too. We do too. And what we see here is that the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for Christians, a a deeper uh, understanding of it, a deeper knowledge of it, a, a deeper insight into it is necessary for our growth as Christians who follow Jesus. There's a book called The Gospel Primer. It's a, it's a family tool that, that we've used a lot in our home as we just rehearse gospel truths. And in the introduction, the author Milton Vincent writes this. The New Testament teaches that Christians ought to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. In fact, in the first chapter of Romans, the apostle Paul tells the believers in the church that he was anxious, quote, to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Now, of course, he was anxious to preach the gospel to the non-Christians at Rome, yet he specifically states that he was eager to preach it to the believers as well, to the Corinthians to the Corinthian Christians who had already believed and already been saved by the gospel, Paul says, I make known to you the gospel which you have believed. Then he restates the historical facts of the gospel before showing them how those gospel facts apply to their beliefs about the afterlife. Vincent writes, this is actually Paul's approach to various other issues throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. In most of Paul's letters to churches, sizable portions of them are given over to rehearsing gospel truths. For example, Ephesians 1 through 3, all gospel. Colossians 1 and 2, gospel. Romans 1 through 11, all gospel. And the remainder of such books shows specifically how to bring those truths to bear on life. Re-preaching the gospel and then showing how it applied to life was Paul's choice method for ministering to believers, thereby providing a divinely inspired pattern for me to follow when ministering to myself and to others. So the gospel's for believers. And when we say gospel, we don't just mean the, you know, sort of the evangelistic message that gets you into the door of the kingdom and then you sort of move on from it to other things uh, in, the, in the Christian faith or the Christian life. The gospel is the truths that Jesus and his apostles taught us that we should be thinking every single day and building our lives around that every single day. So the gospel is not just the door in, it's everything. It's our whole journey with God and how we walk with him. Last month, uh, Josh and I uh, attended the Converge Conference in Orlando. There's a picture that uh, should be popping up here for you to see, the Unleashed Conference. Uh, And the Converge uh, Conference is put on by Converge. It's a movement that we're part of as a church. And within the last year, I, I also attended the virtual Acts 29 conference, uh, a movement that I've been part of for years. The church that I was uh, lead pastor in Western New York was an Acts 29 church. And we rejoice to tell you that Converge and Acts 29 are growing all over the country and all over the world, even in the midst of the pandemic. Churches are being planted even throughout the pandemic. Churches were and are being planted. But these conferences we attended uh, weren't just about practice and strategies. For days, we sat and listened to our brothers and sisters in Christ preach the gospel to one another. They constantly talked about Jesus and encouraged one another to go deeper into the word of God and the love of God. And when I attended the Acts 29 virtual conference, I probably heard the word gospel or gospel-centered a hundred times, whether it was Matt Chandler or Jen Wilkin in Texas, Rudy Rubio, a pastor in L.A., Tori Mayo, a pastor in Miami, or Ray Ortland from right here in Nashville, or one of the many pastors that we heard from overseas who are planting churches in, in difficult places. 
One thing was obvious, that the most important thing in every ministry, every church and in our movement is the gospel. It's like an engine. There are many parts of a car, but the engine is what makes it go. And we are thankful to be part of several movements, Converge in Acts 29, that understand the power of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel, the necessity of the gospel, and the idea that we need to be constantly preaching it to ourselves and one another and growing in it, that we don't move on from it. We only grow into a deeper understanding of it. Now, if you've attended Redeeming Hope for any length of time, you know that this is our habit. We may teach a lot of different books in scripture and hit a lot of topics, but it all comes back to this, that our sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus, that his resurrection power is working in the believer as we continually place our faith in Christ and that our hope is in him for all things. J.I. Packer said, we don't move on from the gospel only into a deeper understanding of it. One of my favorite teachers, an old Scot named Sinclair Ferguson, I heard him say in a message recently that he never ceases to be surprised by the gospel. I loved hearing that from an old man. He says, I never cease to be surprised by the gospel of grace. And we, we need that as well. The gospel, when we really see it in its beauty, it's like a, a multifaceted diamond that you turn and it has a different beauty every time you turn it. And it continues to surprise us and encourage us. The gospel primer, one more quote. Vincent writes, the gospel is so foolish, according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous, according to my conscience, and so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to fully believe the scope of it, of it as I should. There is simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel." Christians need the gospel. We need to hear it and we need to see it. And that's who Paul was praying for, was the believers in Ephesus. Now, what is he praying? Back to verses 17 through 19, we'll see he was praying for several things. First, we see that he's praying for this word he uses, revelation, or the eyes of their heart to be opened. Let's look at the text again. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. So he, he prays that they would have revelation. Now, they'd already heard the gospel, they'd already believed the gospel, and yet there's, there's this thing that Paul's praying for that he calls revelation. It's, it's to see it more. That word revelation is a Greek word, apocalypsis. It means an uncovering or to make an appearance. We get the English word apocalypse from that word apocalypsis. And what's an apocalypse? You know, the apocalypse is you know, the appearance of the end. Uh, or if you're a Christian, that Jesus will make an appearance at the end time and when the end time events, you know, come to pass. And the gospel is like that. And this is what Paul is praying, that Jesus would, in a sense, make an appearance in their heart, that the, the truths of the gospel, the life of the Spirit would make an appearance to their hearts, make an appearance to the eyes of their understanding. It's kind of like those old magic picture books, you know, you ever see those things? You know, it's like 
all these little colors and patterns. And, and if you stare at it long enough, you're supposed to like be able to see this image come together. Now, I wasn't very good at those things. My kids were gifted at those books. They'd literally open them up and be like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a deer in the woods. And I'd, I would look at it and I'd be like, I, I don't see it. Dad, you need, to, you need to like stare at it, but not really at it. You need to stare through it. And I'd just be like looking at it. And just, I remember the one time all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I see it. There's the deer and I see a tree. And it was just like, apocalypsis. Like, I, I, it suddenly came together. And, and the scriptures can be like that. Like literally, people can have the scriptures but not have the gospel. They could be staring at the word of God for years. And I've seen this happen over and over in the lives of religious people. They have the scriptures, but they don't see it. And, and Paul's saying, I want you to see it. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see his beauty and his centrality. I want you to see grace. And all of a sudden, it starts to come together. And it's like, it's like you're born again, again. It's like all of a sudden you go, oh, there it is. I'm, I, I, it was right in front of me, but I didn't see it. And all of a sudden you see it. That's what Paul's praying for. He's praying that we, we, would, we would see the gospel of grace, that we would see the power of the cross at work in our hearts and the life of the spirit and, and all these things. In chapter three, he calls it strength to comprehend. So I'm going to pull in a parallel text just from a, a couple chapters away, which we will look at in depth later on. But just look at this phrase in verse 18 of chapter three. He says, I pray, this is another prayer of Paul, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I love that how the NIV uh, translates it. It says that you'd have power to grasp. I love that. He's praying that they'd have power to, to grasp, to see something, power to comprehend something. Folks, we need power from the Holy Spirit to comprehend the gospel, to comprehend grace, to comprehend the cross and what it means. It's, it's power to have spiritual knowledge, where? In your spirit, we'll call it your spiritual knower. It's in your heart. It's experiential knowledge, over intellectual knowledge because they already knew, right? They already heard and knew the, the gospel. They knew that Jesus died on the cross for them and rose from the dead. And yet he's praying that they'd have power to comprehend. He's praying for this apocalypsis of the heart that they'd see something they haven't seen. What's he, what's he praying? For a deeper knowledge, a different kind of knowledge, a knowledge to add to the knowledge they had, to know what they know, to feel what they know, to experience what they know. Man, that's something we need to be praying for one another. That's something we need to be praying for believers. Would you pray that for me? That I wouldn't just preach this gospel and have it in my head and have it in my mind, but I'd really experience it in my heart and know it. That's what I'm praying for you. And that's what we should be praying for one another. That's what we should be praying for our children. This power to comprehend. One writer says, the knowledge of God is, more, is of more practical use than the knowledge of economics, philosophy, mathematics, physics, mechanics, and any other body of knowledge. The knowledge of God is life-giving. That's John 17, three. The knowledge of God brings grace and peace and abundance. That's 2 Peter 1, 2. Where the knowledge of God is, men, women, and children flourish. And you see this often with kids who grow up in church, don't you? There, there comes a moment, hopefully, we pray for this, when all that they've heard in their home, hopefully, and, and, and in the church, 
becomes true in their hearts. Where it's like that magic picture book. They, they can have it all in front of them, right? And you'll often hear this testimony from a, you know, a young adult or somebody later on in years, and they'll say, you know, I grew up in the church, but when I was 18, or I grew up in the church when I went off to college and I was attending this you know, gathering uh, you know, uh, in the college group or in the, in the church I was a part of, or I went through this crisis, and, and all of a sudden it became real to me. What are they saying? They had an apocalypse. They, they had this opening of the eyes of their hearts where they begin to know what they know. They begin to experience that which they gave mental assent to. That's what Paul is praying. And that's what we need to be praying one for another. There's actually a song based on this, uh, this part of the prayer, you know, that our eyes would be opened. Um, and matter of fact, um, in 1997, my wife and I were in a church in East Texas where we lived at the time. And there was a worship leader there named Paul Balash, and he goes, hey, I want to try this song out on you. Maybe you've heard the song. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. And that song went all across the world. It's based on the scripture. It's that prayer. Lord, let, let me know what I know. Let me see what I've seen. Let me experience it beyond just an intellectual knowledge. Paul's praying for that that the eyes of their heart would be open, that revelation. The second thing he's praying is that they would know the hope to which he has called, he says, the hope to which he has called you. What's the hope? What is he talking about there? It's, it's hope in something that hasn't fully arrived yet. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't need to hope, we'd have it. And so what is that? He is speaking of the, the hope of our coming salvation. Now we, we have been saved, right? And, we are being saved, and the Bible says, and we shall be saved. So we have to remember that salvation is now and not yet. There's this sense that uh, we've laid hold of it and we've yet to fully lay hold of it. And so Paul's saying that he's praying that they would know the hope to which God has called them, that they would truly experience the, the power of that hope, the life of that hope, the comfort and warmth of that hope. So while we have received Christ, we've received salvation, we also look forward with this biblical hope or this assurance. Now, last fall, um, actually it was earlier this year, I took my kids to see the uh, Dolphins-Titans game in, um, in Nashville. But last fall, I ordered the tickets. And we got those tickets, you know, digi this digital version of these tickets. And, and I, I brought my boys in. I said, boys, I want to show you something. Check it out. Right? And they looked at it, and Dolphins, Titans, right? And, and it was, this is your path, you're, you're going to the game. They, they, we had them in hand. They were in my, you know, my, the wallet on my phone. We're going to the game. Their eyes turned wide. They were, they were so excited and encouraged because they were assured that they would get in right when we got to the game. We wouldn't just go to the stadium and you know, walk around and, and not be able to get in. We were going to get in because we had these tickets. Now, they weren't at the game yet, but their hope was secure because the tickets were in hand. And Paul's saying, I pray that you know the hope to which he has called you. There's, there's an assurance that comes with our salvation. This hope, but not a hope where we might not get it, but it, it's a hope that comes with an assurance that we shall receive the salvation that he has promised. So we don't hope like the world does as, as though the possibility remains that we might not get what we hope for. The tickets are in our hands. Like we read last week in verse 14 in Ephesians 1, this same text, he says, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee 
of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we look forward, yet there is a sense of laying hold of possession of it now. And Paul described it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. So there's the, there's the doneness of it, right? There's the past tense sense of our salvation. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So there's the nowness of it. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith. There's, there's the forward looking of it. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I wanna encourage you to lay hold of that hope today. Lay hold of your union with Christ. Believe in uh, the, the future, the glorious future that you have in Jesus, the promised salvation that is to come. Lay hold of the reality that you are in Christ right now. And so what really, you know what Paul is really praying for? He's really praying for confidence in the believers in Ephesus, in the salvation that they have received. And I believe that is one of the marks of spiritual growth and maturity is confidence. When we're immature, we're, we're insecure. We're, we're, we're still uh, vacillating between, you know, faith and and. and, and and assurance and, and insecurity and shame and condemnation and guilt. And, and as we grow in Christ, one of the marks of spiritual maturity is hope, is that, redeeming hope, is that, that assurance of salvation. And, and we walk in the confidence of that and, and it completes us. It heals us in a way where we no longer need anything from the world because I, I'm secure now because of this promise from God that is yes and amen. And I know where I'm going and I know where I'm heading. And I know how this ends. And, and since we know how the story ends, I can live my now in, in security and confidence. And there, there's real joy in that. There's real peace in that. Believing the hope to which he has called us has a deep effect on the climate of our hearts every day. If we'll live in that hope, then we'll find that the world will no longer control the climate of our hearts. Our faith controls the climate of our hearts as we interact with the world. And that's a beautiful, powerful thing. And that's what we pray for, uh, for you. And that we ought to be praying for one another as we imitate this prayer of Paul. So we pray for revelation, the opening of the, of the eyes of the heart to uh, the knowledge of the gospel, not only intellectually, but in the heart experientially. We pray that we know the hope to which we are called, that assurance and confidence <clears throat> in our salvation. And then he says, and I pray that you know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what this means is that we would know who we are in Christ. We, we would understand our identity in Christ. We've talked about this for the last few weeks as we've looked at chapter one and how many times Paul mentions in him or that phrase in Christ. It's the hallmark phrase of the summary phrase of Paul's gospel that we are saved by our position in Christ, not by our performance. And in that position, we have this we have this amazing identity and inheritance. We have all these spiritual blessings in Christ if we would just lay hold of them. What do I mean by that? Well, listen to this story. Maybe it'll help you understand uh, how sometimes we live um, below our identity and we don't partake of the inheritance that we have in Christ right now. <clears throat> I read about a young Irish woman who emigrated to the US in the first decades of the 20th century. She had family in New York who told her she could find work there. So she saved up and scraped up money and, and she purchased a transatlantic uh, ticket to, to, on this ocean liner to, to go to America. 
And after setting aside a little money for the expenses she knew that she'd incur when she got to New York, she packed a little bag of food to carry with her on her six-day journey, and it was mostly crackers. When passengers headed to the dining room for lunch and dinner, she went to her small cabin, opened up her little bag, and had her ration for the day of, of these little crackers. Now, on the final day aboard, someone asked her why she never came to the dining room for lunch or dinner. Embarrassed by her poverty, she admitted she just couldn't afford it. All she could afford was her ticket. And the woman said to her, but my dear, all your meals are included in the price of your ticket. Oh no. She'd lived on crackers for six days when the whole time she had access to the, to the buffet. She had access to the dining room for lunch and dinner. And the same thing can happen to us who belong in Christ. He has purchased for us, as the book of Hebrews puts it, so great a salvation. And as Ephesians 1 puts it, he's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we may not know what we have. Many Christians live on rations when we could be and should be feasting. Neil Anderson, author of the book Victory Over Darkness and also the, uh, the second book in that series, The Bondage Breaker, he said, not knowing who you are in Christ is the source of every spiritual conflict. And so Paul's praying that they would really know who they are in Christ. He's praying for revelation. He's praying that they'd know the hope to which they're called, this assurance and confidence in their salvation. He's praying that they would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And finally, he prays that they'd know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let's, let's look at that again in verses 19 and 20. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Do you see what Paul is saying here about a person who gets saved, a person who becomes a, a follower of Jesus? He says that the same power that worked in the resurrection of Jesus is the same power that works in a person when they become a Christian. This tells us how severe and dire our condition is before we're saved. It is literally resurrection power, breathing life into our spirit, into our hearts. And he raises us from the dead and we begin to see the gospel. We begin to see Jesus. We begin to see what the cross means. We begin to see the resurrection and we begin to walk in newness of life by the Holy Spirit. So who's, who's Paul praying for? Christians. What is he praying for? Revelation of Jesus, confidence in our salvation, knowing who we are in Christ, and the resurrection life of the Spirit. Finally, third point, what fuels the prayer? What fuels the prayer? As we read verses 20 through 23, we'll have to conclude that what fuels Paul's prayer is awe of God. He is stunned by the supremacy of Christ, by the beauty and the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Matter of fact, verses 15 through 21 is actually a run-on sentence in the, original, uh, in the original text. And it's the second time he's done this. Verses 3 through 14 is a 257-word uh, run-on sentence. It's the longest sentence in the Bible. Now, why is this significant? One writer puts it this way. Grammar is boring, right? What if I told you that in Ephesians chapter one, grammar is actually pretty exciting? 
What if I told you that broken grammar was exciting because it conveys excitement? Paul's bad grammar actually teaches us what he was feeling when he wrote it and what we should experience as we read and reflect on it. Most of our English translations break down verses 3 through 14 into six sentences so we can wrap our head around everything Paul originally wrote in one huge, breathless, run-on sentence. That tells us something. Paul is excited. Even the English which breaks the section down into smaller, in the English, which breaks the section down into smaller chunks, there's still run on sentences. Paul is tripping over his own tongue, trying to express the unparalleled glory of God's grace toward his people. I'll say it this way. Paul is like drunk with the life of the spirit. He actually says in the book of Ephesians, be filled with, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Be intoxicated with the spirit. And in fact, he certainly is in this text. It's like he just suddenly breaks off into this, this worship, this awe of God as he's just describing the gospel. He, he just can't help himself. He says, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's seen the pearl of great price. And he's, he's stunned. He's like a treasure hunter gets obsessed. We've all seen movies where, you know, some treasure hunter just gets obsessed with finding, you know, this great hidden treasure, you know, like the movie National Treasure or, you know, one of those type of things. Paul's obsessed with this treasure and he doesn't want his children to miss it. He wants them to see it too. He's taken in with the beauty of Christ. He says, far, above all rule and authority and dominion. He's giving us the scope of Christ's rule. Not a, not a little above all rule and dominion and authority. It, it's far above. It's far above every other kind of aboveness that can be named. The word is actually, in the original, is very abstract. It's almost like he's going way, like a little kid who's trying to describe you know, something awesome. Way above, far above. Tell your trials that today. You know, get, get in here, get into this text, get into this verse and look at your trials, your suffering, your pain, your confusion, your, your delayed answers to prayer, your, your financial struggles, uh, the things that are happening in your life that are confusing and look at them through this verse and go far above all rule and authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth on earth has been given to him. And if he has all authority, if he's that in control, if he rules that greatly and sovereignly over our lives, then we can trust him and we can rest in whatever he's doing in our lives. And by the way, he says far, and he goes, and he goes into this, this worshipful text as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of that fact that we looked at and talked briefly about the first couple of weeks. He's in a prison cell and he's saying this. So you can't look at this text and go, well, Paul's just, he's, you know, he's been successful in ministry, started all these churches. He's doing well. No, he's, he, circumstantially, he is not doing well. He's in a prison cell and he's actually facing the possibility of his own martyrdom. And this comes out of his heart. The gospel comes out of him in his suffering. Not only does our gospel work in the dark places, for those of us who follow Christ and have faith in Jesus, it actually comes out of us in dark places. It surfaces in those 
places. This is the same thing we see in Jesus on the cross. What came out of Jesus' mouth on the cross? He quoted scripture. Truth, gospel, just oozes out of Jesus in his moment of suffering, just like it did with Paul. And may the gospel be that deep in all of us. So what fuels Paul's prayer? Beauty, the, the awe of God, his, his heart that's full of worship for Jesus Christ. How can we apply this message? Just some thoughts. Uh, we're gonna break this down into our uh, you know, three questions, you know, what, how, who. So, so how do we respond? What, what's the answer to the what? We, we believe the gospel. We, we believe. We, we, put our, we put our hope in Jesus. We believe in who you are in Christ and begin to live out of that identity in who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. How? Well, we, we imitate Paul's prayers. So I want to encourage you with some things. I want to encourage you to pray the, the, these prayers, pray this prayer for Christians in your life, for your family, friends, other members of this uh, family of believers here at Redeeming Hope. Pray this for other Christians. Pray this for the Christians suffering in the Ukraine. Pray this for Christians around the world, those that we support in Togo and other areas. Pray this for them. Lord, Open the eyes of their understanding. Lord, let them know who they are in Christ. Lord, let them know the hope of their salvation. I want to encourage you as we imitate Paul's prayers to make this text our theme text for prayer as a church family. And I'm just asking you to, to join me. This is, how, this is how I've been praying for my brothers and sisters here at Redeeming Hope from day one, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. And I want to encourage you to be praying that for one another and praying that for uh, Josh and I as we lead this church together as co-lead pastors. Pray this for the Western church. Pray this for Clarksville. What, it, what we're seeing here in Ephesians 1, this is what the church needs in Clarksville. We need, to, we need to see this. We need to experience this. And if we did, and, and if this was experienced, if God answered this prayer for the churches in Clarksville, we'd probably call it a revival because people would be so filled with the Spirit, so full of the life of the Spirit, we'd go out as healed people in, into our communities and bring the life of the gospel to people around us and the word of God to people around us. I want to encourage you to pray for our movement. Pray for Converge. Pray for the Acts 29 movement. Pray for the new churches that are being planted around the world and the churches that exist, that Ephesians 1 and the prayer that's contained here would be answered in our movement. And what about the who? What about the who? I think something we can take from this verse is that if salvation is essentially raising somebody from the dead, then there's nobody that's a hopeless case. We, we should not look at anybody in our community and go, eh, not that guy. I know Jesus saves, but not that guy. I know Jesus saves, but ain't no way he's going to save that lady. She's too messed up. No, 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 no. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward those who believe that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? We should look at people with resurrection eyes and go, they're dead and they're really, really dead. And maybe they're going to become a trophy of grace. I'm going to pray for them. And I'm going to bring the life of Jesus to them. I'm going to preach the gospel to them in word and deed. I'm going to love them in Jesus' name. Wow. Can you imagine? If we would think that way, that there's no hopeless cases in Clarksville, 
and that the life of God can work through his church as we preach the gospel, that God will be working through the preaching of the gospel and through the life of the spirit as we minister to people. He will be using that to bring people to himself from the most dire, hopeless situations. There's people right now that are, that are strung out on drugs. There's people right now that are in terrible situations that seem hopeless right now. They're in those situations. And maybe they're even crying out a desperate prayer to God. And God might use you and me to answer that prayer as we go to them and we bring the love and the life and the word of Jesus to them. Just maybe. Let's pray. Let's pray for them. And let's believe in the resurrection power of Jesus that there's nobody God can't, can't save. There's nobody God. And, and save to the uttermost. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.